rest of us, why don't we grab your Bible, make your way to 2 Chronicles chapter 35. We're going to be finishing out this chapter this morning. Uh, for the last several weeks, since the beginning of this new year, we've been walking through a series called Awaken as we're looking at the life of King Josiah and how God used Josiah to lead the nation of Israel back to the Lord and away from the abominations that they've had around the territory and the nation. And I've said this numerous times over throughout this entire series that in order for an awakening or a revival to happen in our life, it has to begin with us personally. We have to want it. We have to seek after it. We have to have a desire for it. Awakening is a spiritual revival. It's meant to revive our hearts, revive our souls and our minds, to get us focused on the presence of God and just to worship Him and be consumed by Him. Throughout America's history, there have been several awakenings which have occurred. The first one was recorded in 1740. It was called the Great Awakening. It actually happened during a time when churches were beginning to close their doors because there were such poor attendance, and the few Christians that there were were living a Christian life in secrecy. That all happened until a New Jersey Dutchman started preaching the gospel message, which electrified the young adults to begin seeking after the presence of God, and the result of this awakening was was what led to the push of America's independence and our ultimate freedom becoming a nation under God. Now, as the nation began to experience freedom, the people began to pursue other interests, money, advancement, the pursuit of happiness, the American dream. And this led people once again to not pursue after God. It was during this time that America, there's one in ten Americans attended church. And one in ten, in, in ten Americans actually associated themselves with a church. It was said during this time that Christianity in America would end in within 30 years. Then in the late 18th century, another awakening occurred in the state of Kentucky, which called for repentance and prayer. And this awakening lasted until the middle of the 19th century. It was in the midst of this awakening that slavery was abolished, and America began the westward expansion, which led to the railroad being built and the discovery of gold in the West. With people flocking to the West for fortune and fame, the nation once again slipped back into spiritual decay. As people moved West, the banking system crashed. The railroads went bankrupt, and factories were being shut down. Yet once again, in the midst of another spiritual decline, a man by the name of Jeremiah Lanfear in New York City decided it was time to pray. So he called for a prayer service in New York on September 23, 1857. Though he sent out invitations to the entire city, no one showed up at noon when the prayer service was supposed to begin. Matter of fact, only six people showed up, and that was about at about 12.30. Those individuals gathered together and they prayed with one another and they decided that we're going to start doing this every Wednesday. We're going to gather to pray. And on that Wednesday, the six people, the next Wednesday grew to 40. The prayer gathering, they decided then they needed to start praying daily together. In the course of six months, 10,000 people were attending a prayer meeting. It slowly grew from 
city to city until nearly two million people came to Christ and knew him as their Lord and Savior. His prayer began, revival began in 1857 and lasted until the early 1900s. It was again that prosperity and advancement led to another spiritual decay of the nation. By the time the 20th century began, America and the world were in a state of uncertainty as a world war began. World War I was followed by the Great Depression and then yet another world war. From there, the nation of America involved themselves in wars in Korea and Vietnam. The nation itself saw several leaders be assassinated. Martin Luther King Jr., John F. Kennedy, Robert Kennedy. And the nation seemed to be tearing itself apart in a state of fear and uncertainty. But in this time of fear and uncertainty, a religious rebellion happened out in California called the Jesus Movement. As hippies were flocking to churches and began worshiping the Lord, Christians during this time are known as Jesus freaks. From this movement, a man by the name of Billy Graham emerged as a leading evangelist in the nation. From this movement, a new style of Christian music began to emerge with bands like the Resurrection Band and Petra, individuals like Larry Norman and Rich Mullins, Campus Crusaders was established, and fellowship of Christian athletes began to spread throughout the nation. It was believed that the Jesus movement ended sometime in the mid to late 1980s, yet we still see some of the fruit from that awakening. Most religious leaders agree that there has not been an awakening in America since. The closest being what was seen a couple years ago on a college campus college students were gathering together to worship 24 hours a day, and that spread to some other campuses, but it never took the nation by storm. What this means is it has been over 40 years since there has been awakening by God's people that has taken this nation by storm. And I believe we are currently in a state where we have an incredible opportunity. We missed one back in 2001. Shortly after September 11th, people began flocking to the church because they didn't know what was happening. They didn't know how to understand it, and they looked for spiritual leaders to give them direction. But that itself never took off. Author and Pastor J. Robert Morgan writes, It's time now for another revival. America can't be saved by politics. The answer isn't being a Republican, a Democrat, or an Independent. Our economists and educators can't save us. Our entertainers offer diversions without meaning, and our technology gives us a progress without morality. We've seldom been in a greater need for inner revitalization, and conditions are urgent. It's the people of God who represent God on this day, in this year, 2024. We've got to start seeing God as our only hope. He is our only hope. And as we've walked through this series looking at King Josiah's life, Josiah came to that understanding that God was the only hope for Israel. It began in Josiah's life at the age of eight when God positioned him as king. At the age of 16, Josiah decided to make a personal commitment that he was going to seek after God even though it wasn't the popular opinion It led him at the age of 20 to rid the land of all the abominations and the altars to false gods and and, and all the unholy practices. After that, Josiah decided he's going to turn his attention to a restoration project 
that dealt with the temple of God. And during that project, they found the law of God, which was brought to the king. And when they were, read the word of God, King Josiah was brought to a place of repentance. Finally, last week, we saw how he led the people in worshiping the Lord by the means of the Passover, which the Bible says was the greatest Passover in Jerusalem's history. So we walk through the recording of Josiah's life. It, it seems like everything kept going positive for him. And for the most part, it was, but it was a lot of hard work. And a lot of tough and difficult decisions had to be made. There were personal sacrifices that had to be made. And things had to change. And it would be awesome if we were to read through Josiah's life in the, in the scriptures and, and it would just, the recording would end at the, this last Passover, but it doesn't. There's one more episode that's going to happen. And this morning's passage deals with a time that isn't really the greatest time in Josiah's life, but it does give us some final principles that we can apply when it comes to seeing an awakening in our life. We've seen revival in the life of our family, the revival in the life of this church, in this community, in this state, and in this nation. Look at me in verse 20 real quick. After all of this, when Josiah had prepared the temple... Nico, king of Egypt, went up to fight at Carchemish on the Euphrates. And Josiah went out to meet him. That opening phrase there in verse 20 where it says, after all of this, is telling us that a period of time has passed from verse 19 into verse 20. And with the aid of the rest of the scriptures, we can conclude that this after this is actually speaking about a 13-year span. So from verse 19 to verse 20 here in 2 Chronicles 35, we have 13 years that were unrecorded. But we come here and we're told that there's something going on. The reference to Nico of Egypt is speaking about Pharaoh Nico II. The Bible is telling us that even though all these great things have happened within the life of King Josiah and in Jerusalem, that the world around them, the people around them, was still in a state of turmoil. The Assyrian army, just some history and what's happening here, has already taken the northern part of Israel. But they were beginning to lose their power because of the rise of the Babylonians in the east. And seeing this rise occur, the Egyptians decide the best move for them is to go assist the Assyrians to hold off the Babylonians. Because they knew that if the Babylonians came through the northern territory and the southern territory, they would eventually come to Egypt and they would put them under Babylonian rule. So the Egyptians didn't want this. And the Bible tells us that they went up to fight. And Josiah, seeing the world around him, he decides that he's going to move to meet the Egyptian king. And now it's told that it wasn't just Josiah. Obviously, he took an army with them. So we have this massive battle getting ready to occur. And what we can learn from this simple verse and the actions of Josiah is we need to be awakened to the world around us, to be aware of it. When I was in youth ministry, we would do camps and disciple nows like we do here. We do weekend retreats. And during those weekends, there would be guidelines that I would give the students that would go that they were not able to have any sort of music or movies or literature that would be inappropriate for a church-type event. 
So for an entire weekend or a week, the students would be forced to unplug from the godly influences so they could get plugged into God. It was kind of a way of me forcing a fast upon them. That if they wanted to go, I had to go through their iPods or whatever music device they were using at that time. And so we would get to camp. And as we went through the week, on the very last night, what we would do at camp is we would have this time of testimony. What is God showing you this week? What has God talked to you about this week? What have you learned? How have you grown in your relationship with God? And after all the sharing and the testimonies, I would give them a reminder that we're heading home. And the world you left is still there. The friends that are making bad decisions are still there. The problems you had when you came to camp or this weekend retreat are still going to exist. The things that stress you out are still going to be there. There's still going to be temptations. There's still going to be things that are going to cause you pain. All the things that your friends are doing are still there. But we have to go back to that world. When we become awakened to the presence of God, it isn't so that we can abandon the world and then enclose ourselves in some sort of Christian bubble. When we become awakened to the presence of God, it isn't that all the things of this world that cause us pain and hardship are going to cease. When we become awakened to the presence of God, it isn't so we can fall back into the patterns of the world around us, but rather so that we can be the light and the salt of the world that we're commanded and commissioned to be. We do remember concerning this world that we live in, and I know we all know this, but when we become awakened to the presence of God, aware of his presence, hearing his voice, feeling his spirit, we have to remember that the world we live in is still in sin. The people around us are still living in sin. People are still struggling. And I bring this up, even though we know this, it's because I've seen so many spiritual fires die out in people simply because they've become unrealistic. They forget a very important truth. When we experience the presence of God, here's what's going to happen. We are going to become frustrated with people. We're going to wonder, why do they make those decisions? Why do they act that way? Why do they talk that way? Why do they uh, enjoy those certain activities? And we're going to become frustrated because we've experienced the presence of God. And if once we've experienced the presence of God, our desire should be the people around us to experience the presence of God. The people around us to hear his voice. Here's another thing. When we start living for God, seeking God, desiring God, you're going to begin to face persecution like never before. Because people aren't going to like it. People aren't going to like that you're living differently, you're making different decisions. And when we become awakened to the presence of God, it becomes evident in our lives that we have, and we have to remember that we still live in a world that wrestles and struggles with sin. We still live in a world that is broken, and people are broken. And it isn't to discourage us in any sort of way. But what we've seen and we've heard and we've experienced, God. And then we understand this world's still in sin. That, the reminder is this. That's because this world needs God. This world needs God. It's not going to be politics. It's not going to be laws and regulations and legislations. 
that's going to change the heart of people. Only God can change the heart of people. As evident, Josiah, just in this one verse, verse 20, he wasn't blind to the world around him. So he gets his army and he marches out to meet the Egyptian army. But what he seemed to forget that we can just overlook is he forgot the eternal promises of God. And we have to be awakened to the eternal promises of God. When Josiah was brought the book of the law and read it and inquired the meaning of the words, he was told this back in chapter 34, beginning in verse 23. This is a prophetess speaking. She said to them, Thus does the Lord, the God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me. Thus does the Lord, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the curses that are written in the book that was read before the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place. And will not be quenched. And so Josiah, he, he went out to meet the king of Egypt. And he heard a message that should have reminded him of the promises that he found in the book. Look in verse 21. But he sent envoys to him. This is the king of Egypt. Sent envoys to king Josiah saying, What have we to do with each other, king of Judah? I'm not going to war against you this day, but against the house which I am at war. And God has commanded me to hurry, cease opposing God who is with me, lest he destroys you. And though Egypt was not a godly nation per se, it wasn't necessarily serving the Lord as Josiah had led the nation of Israel to do so, God used the king of Egypt to deliver a message again to Josiah. That Egypt was not at war with Josiah or Israel or Judah because God had put a hedge of protection around Josiah because of his humble and repentant heart. Go back into chapter 34 and begin in verse 26. It's the prophetess again speaking. And she says, But to the king of Judah, speaking of Josiah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus thou you say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants, and you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place and its inhabitants." And they brought back word to the king. So Josiah gets the word of the Lord. He gets some instruction to understand it. He has a humble and repentant heart. He sends word to this prophetess who tells Josiah, look, disaster is coming. Destruction is coming. The end is coming. But because you had a humble and tender heart, because you responded to the word of the Lord, it will not come during your time. And you will go to your grave in peace. That was the word spoken over King Josiah. So we come to this point here in chapter 35 and verse 21. He's going out to Egypt to, to go against the army. And we have to say, well, why in the world does he do this? 
If he's already been given an eternal promise from God, why does he take this course of action? And then he's given a word from the Lord from this Egyptian king, and yet he still takes a course of action. Well, in 2 Kings, we're told of an incident regarding Josiah's granddad, King Hezekiah. And in chapter 20 of 2 Kings, King Hezekiah has formed some sort of alliance with the Babylonians. And it's believed he's formed this sort of alliance is because the Assyrians have already marched into the northern territory. They've already taken northern Israel. So King Hezekiah, he decides, I'm going to make an alliance with the Babylonians. That way we have some protection. We'll make ourselves slaves to them. Well, the prophet Isaiah was sent to King Hezekiah to rebuke him. And we learn that King Hezekiah, after the rebuke by the prophet Isaiah, we learn that he was only worried about himself. It says this, Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. That's not great news, right? This is Hezekiah's response. Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, why not? If there will be peace and security in my days. So what's happening now as we come to 2 Chronicles 35. Is we're seeing that Josiah's day was set by God because of Israel's wickedness. God had warned them when he brought them into the promised land. Going all the way back to the book of Joshua. That if they departed from him he would bring disaster and destruction in the form of judgment. And now, that promise that God made centuries before to Joshua and the Israelites is coming to fulfillment and fruition. And so, when I say we have to be awakened to the eternal promises of God, we have to be aware, we have to have a conviction, and we have to have a belief and understanding that everything in God's word either has or will come true. Even the parts we don't like are the parts we don't understand. The Bible says in Psalms, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Jesus said this, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And so how does that apply to us today? God promises in his word, not as a fear tactic, but just to deliver the truth that one day there will be a day of judgment and that every individual that has ever lived will go into a place of judgment, will be brought before the throne of the Lord and everyone is going to be separated into one or two, one of two groups. There's no middle ground. One group is going to be welcomed into heaven Well done, my good and faithful servant. The other group is going to be told to depart because of their wickedness, because they are in sin. These matters are set. There's no stopping it. 
There's no changing it. With that said, God also promises deliverance and salvation for everyone and anyone who believes that he sent his son Jesus into this world to die for the sins of the world, to rise from the grave, that those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ alone might be saved and have eternal life. As God's people, we have to have strong convictions on God's word. It has to be the utmost authority over our life. It's not popular opinion. It's not cultural fads or cultural acceptance. It's not the outspoken minority. We have to have strong convictions that if people do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they are going to hell. So we have to proclaim the gospel. We have to preach the truth. We have to let them know there is a God in heaven who loves them very much. Loves them so much he died for them. He loves them so much he rose from the grave. He loves them so much he gives them the gift of eternal life if they would simply place their faith and trust in it. That doesn't mean they have to have all the theology. That doesn't mean they have to have a master's in biblical studies or understand all of the doctrine. They just need to know God loves you. Come back to our text with King Josiah. We've got this man who he pursued after God. He fell deeply in love with God for the bulk of his life. But then, at the end of it, he makes the decision that he's going to go against the will of God. And the results of that decision were not only going to be catastrophic for him, but they're going to be catastrophic for the nation he was called to lead. Look in verse 22 through 25. Nevertheless, Josiah did not turn away from him, but disguised himself in order to fight with him. He did not listen to the words of Nico from the mouth of God, but came to fight in the plain of Megiddo. And the archer shot King Josiah, and the king said to his servants, Take me away, for I am badly wounded. So the servants took him out of the chariot and carried him in his second chariot and brought him to Jerusalem, and he died and was buried in the tombs of his fathers. All Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Jeremiah also uttered a lament for Josiah, and all the singing men and singing women have spoken of Josiah and their laments to this day. They made these a rule in Israel. Behold, they are written in the laments. Then look what happened. Jump with me to chapter 36. So Josiah sought after God his entire life until the very end. He made a decision he's going to go against the will of God. And look what happens after he dies. The people of of the land took Jehoaz the son of Josiah, and made him king in his father's place in Jerusalem. Jehoaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. Then the king of Egypt deposed him in Jerusalem and laid on the land a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. And the king of Egypt made Eliakim his brother king over Judah and Jerusalem and changed his name to Jehoiakim. But Necho took Jehoaz, his brother, and carried him to Egypt. Verse 5. 
Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Against him came up Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also carried part of the vessels of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his palace in Babylon. So Josiah's decision to go against the will of God actually began back with King Hezekiah. And the statement that Hezekiah came to decision that he heard the word of God, but he thought as long as his life is good, then that's okay. He can live with whatever else happens. And so what we have to awaken to is awaking to the reaping of consequences. We have to be aware that our decisions not only impact our lives, but they impact the lives of the people around us, and they have an impact on the generation that will follow us. And we see a great picture of this when we just look at America's own history, which we started with today, and we see it again here in King Josiah's life. I have to understand that decisions I make don't just impact me. The decisions I make impact my wife. The decisions I make impact my kids. They impact the way I'm able to pastor. They impact the people in my life, and they're going to impact my kids' kids if they decide to have some. And how this plays out in our life is if God is only somewhat important in your life. Just do a spiritual assessment. How important is God in your life? If God is only somewhat important in your life, then there's going to be a very strong potential that he's going to be less than important in your kids' lives. And it begins a trickle effect. The trend continues and to the point that he isn't important at all in any of your family's life. We impact not only our life, but we impact the next generation by what we believe and how we live by those beliefs. If we truly want to be in a better nation, if we truly want to say that we live in a nation that is truly under God, and we want to leave that nation to our children and their children, then here's the thing. It has to start with us personally. We have to personally make the decision. I can't force you to do it. I can't sometimes force myself to do it. But we have to personally make the decision, God's going to be number one. He is going to be the priority. It's not going to be activities. It's not going to be hobbies. It's not going to be sports. It's not going to be celebrities. It's not even going to be a thing called the Super Bowl. God's going to be number one. And Hezekiah's action came to fruition in Josiah's life. And Josiah's actions came to fruition in his kids' lives. What type of legacy, what type of spiritual legacy are we going to leave our children? And I understand, I, I'm a parent, I understand. We want to teach them how to hunt, we want to teach them how to fish. We want to teach them how to play a sport. But when is teaching our children how to pursue after God a priority? What type of legacy are we going to leave for our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren, which we may never meet? I've been blessed to have a mom and dad that love the Lord. And their love for God has impacted my brother's life and has impacted my life. 
by my parents' love and pursuit after God, guess what? It's actually impacting their grandkids. My mom was impacted by her parents, who were impacted by her parents before them. Shares before my dad was impacted by a neighbor after his dad passed away. It's individuals who impacted my parents, who I... I've met my, my grand-granddad, obviously, but they impacted me. That flow has impacted my kids. And now I'm blessed to see my kids, our kids, sorry, Jamie, <laughs> impacting other kids. Eternal impact. If we want to outlive our life, it's not about making more money. It's about impacting the future generations for the kingdom of God. I want to see one more thing before we close up. Josiah did a lot of great things in his life before it ended, and his life ended like many kings before him in that he stumbled in sin and eventually died. The reference to Jeremiah there in verse 25 is found in Jeremiah chapter 46, verses 2 through 12, about that lament. Josiah died because he was a sinful man. And how does that help us with awakening, Pastor? We have to wake to the constants of sin. I'm sure many people, when they looked at Josiah, they did what we tend to do today, and that they put him up on a pedestal. You know, we do that with celebrities. We do that uh, with, with leaders. We put them up on this pedestal. But we have to understand, everyone is going to disappoint us at some time. Because everyone is a sinner. Even the most godly of individuals were still sinful people. A lot of people I found are anti-God or anti-church because of the sinful acts of believers because they put on this facade that they were perfect. And they had it all together. I found some of the most outspoken atheists are the way they are because they've had an encounter with the church in their past that was negative. Or they had an encounter with a pastor or a believer that was negative. I want to make a confession. I am a sinner. I struggle with sin. I do stupid things sometimes. I may even disappoint you at some point in time as your pastor, if I haven't already. Just because I'm a preacher does not mean I am perfect. It doesn't mean I have it all figured out. It doesn't mean if you come to me with a biblical question that I will have the answer. I struggle. I want to make a confession for my wife. As sweet as she is, as pretty as she is, my wife is a sinner too. She's going to disappoint you sometimes. She may make you mad. It's possible. I want to make a confession for my kids. My kids are not perfect angels. They don't get it right all the time. I'm not raising them with the expectation that they have to be a missionary or a preacher. 
sometimes they are going to surprise you by the things they do and not in a good way. Some of you may have already thought or had the question come in your head, did you see what the preacher's kids did today? I pray you hold your own children up to the same standard you hold mine. They're not perfect. What I'm I'm getting at is it's not fair for us to put people on pedestals that they cannot fill and to put expectations on people that they cannot live out. The greatest evangelist, the greatest preacher is still a sinner in need of grace. Josiah, though he led a nation to a place of revival and awakening, Josiah was not the Messiah. He gives us a great image of what a true righteous king could look like when they sat over the people. But no one is immune to sin except for Jesus Christ. No one did it perfectly except Jesus Christ. And that's why we need him. That's why God sent him. Jesus lived a life we could not live, a death, died a death that we deserved, and rose again that we can have forgiveness that we do not deserve. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it says that the wages of sin is death. That means eternal separation from the God of the living. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. And you may be sitting here and saying, why is that so important? I mean, I'm at church. I said it last week. I want to say it again. Going to church is not what makes you a Christian. Going to church is not what saves you. Only Jesus Christ can save you. Jesus said this, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And if you're here this morning and not began a relationship with God, only found through Jesus Christ, God made it incredibly easy but extremely important. It begins by admitting to God that you are a sinner. You fall short. You're not perfect. You mess up at times. And then believing that God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die for your sins, to take your punishment. And he did just that, and they placed him in a tomb, but on the third day, he rose. And the Bible says, and we believe that God loves us that much, and we confess that we are sinners, and confess our need for forgiveness for our sins, and that Jesus Christ is the only way that we can find that forgiveness, then we have to make a public confession of faith. And the Bible says when we do that, when we confess Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we will be saved. If you're here this morning and you're uncertain or you know for a fact you haven't taken that step of faith, I'm going to be standing down here and I'm going to ask you to come down and say, Pastor Mike, I want to be saved. I need to be saved. I believe God's got great plans for this church family. He's already been doing great things. I want us to be a family that is seeking after him. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I'm asking Nick to come up and lead us. I want to pray over us real quick.
Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us and taking care of us. Thank you for your grace and your mercy and your kindness, your faithfulness to us. Lord, if there's someone here this morning that needs to begin a relationship with you found only through Jesus Christ, I pray that they would come down this aisle. Lord, thank you so much that you want to draw us closer to your presence. You want us to have encounters with you. You want us to experience you and your presence and your spirit. Thank you, Lord, for that. Forgive us if we failed you in any way. As you continue, you remain glorified and praise on the name of Jesus. Amen.